Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds for this special series to discuss women in STEM. Can you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? Thank you, Erica. I'm delighted to join today and, and talk with you. Um, my name is Pamela Raymond. I have been at the University of Michigan basically my entire academic career. Uh, I was an undergraduate student here, and then I got my master's and my PhD, all of those in zoology, which at the time we had two biology departments, botany and zoology. Um, and so my degrees are here. I'm actually from Michigan. So my whole family is native Michiganders going back a couple of generations. I did postdoctoral training here. I was away for a few years and then I came back on the faculty. Initially, I started on the faculty in the medical school here in 1980 and was um, involved in teaching medical students in the what we call then the basic sciences. So the, I taught histology, neuroanatomy, embryology, those kinds of things. Um, and then I moved my faculty appointment to LSA to what was what was now the Department of Molecular Cellular Developmental Biology. So the discipline of biology here at Michigan and elsewhere around the country has um, sort of merged botany and zoology into one biology. And then the, the discipline sort of fractured again, not, uh, not along the plant animal division, but instead um, into the, what we call skin in and skin out. So the, the, the biologists who study organisms and how they interact in their environment um, is our Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And then my department is Molecular Cellular Developmental Biology. So we, the faculty and, and the research that we do in, in MCDB focuses on things that generally that go on inside organisms at the molecular and cellular level. And I moved um, from the medical school back to LSA. So I was actually going back to my own department. Um, I mean, it was named differently, but it's the, it was the same building at the time, the Krauss building, uh, which is where I was a student, undergrad all the way through, um, was where I went back to many years later on the faculty. And I went back because I was missing something in my medical school appointment, and that was teaching undergrads. And I really wanted to do that. When I come from, my family, as I said, was from Michigan, but um, I'm the first generation to actually graduate from a, uh, a four-year college. So my parents, my dad, when he got back from World War II was in the GI Bill and he had a two-year um, training at a Lawrence Tech Institute to be an engineer. And my mom was a teacher. She had two years of junior college. So um, I had no clue growing up that I would ever consider being a professor. You know, it wasn't something that anything in my family uh, knew anything about. And in fact, my, I remember my aunt telling me when I said I was going to major in zoology, she said, does that mean you're going to work in a zoo? <laughs> so anyway, um, so I wanted to come back to LSA and teach undergrads to 
basically show them that they could do research, to show them a, a career pathway that I knew nothing about. And it was only through my professor who, um, who said to me, you know, why, why are you thinking of working in a, because what I was intending to do was work in a histology lab in the hospital. So, you know, when they take blood and urine and feces samples and send them down to the lab, there are technicians down there working. And that's what I was on track to do. We had a major at the time uh, in college to work in a lab. And I did that in the summer and it was really boring. So, so my professor said, um, well, haven't you ever considered going to graduate school? You know, and anyway, so that's how I ended up being a professor. And I wanted to share that kind of experience with future generations of students to get them interested in science. So that's wonderful. That's, I mean, that's too what long I, of an introduction. Oh, no, I love it. What a great story. <laughs> I love it. Can you tell me more about the Raymond lab and the research that has been conducted there? Sure. My, um, it's interesting you use that term Raymond lab. That's what we do in science. We sort of name the labs by the last name of the, of the faculty. Um, so I really stayed focused on the same kinds of questions in my scientific research that I began with as a, as a graduate student. And the question that I was fascinated was how do neurons get born, basically? How do we generate the brain? The brain is a very interesting tissue. It has, it's very complex. And how does it get put together? And in particular, to just sort of narrow that down a little more, the specific question that had that 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 fascinated me throughout my whole research career was um, related to the fact that certain kinds of animals, fishes in particular, continue to grow throughout their life. So. Everybody's familiar with this, I think. You know, the fishermen are always trying to catch the biggest fish. Fish don't have an adult body size. The older they get, the bigger they get. They just keep growing. And so if you've got a bigger body, then your brain is bigger too. And so the question comes, well, do you how how does that happen? Do you do you have to add new neurons, let's say, in the brain, or do maybe individual neurons just get bigger? Maybe a big fish has big neurons in the same number that it had when it was a little fish. And it's actually not the second, it's the first. Fish keep adding neurons to their brain throughout their entire life. And that's not true of us, of course. I mean, everybody knows probably that you know, as you age, you're just losing neurons, right? Your, our mental capacity decreases because we keep losing neurons. Um, in humans, there is addition of neurons after birth in some limited regions of the brain, not everywhere. Mostly when you're born, you're born with all the neurons you're gonna have with a few exceptions. There's an area of the brain that controls um, movement. It's called the cerebellum. You know, babies can't walk, right? Part of the reason they can't walk is the part of the brain that controls locomotion, walking, doesn't have all its neurons yet. So there's continued neurogenesis is the term we use, genesis making of new neurons in a human, in a baby, 
for a little while after birth, but then it shuts down and we, don't, we can't make any more neurons. Fish can. So the question is, how do they do that? Their brain is very similar to ours and the neurons are identical in many respects. So why is it that fish can continue to make new neurons as if they're constantly rejuvenating? And the part of the nervous system that I focused on was the retina. So in your eye, the neural retina is basically a little piece of brain that's pushed out from the, from the skull out toward the periphery and sits there as two little cups of filled with neurons that are catching visual signals and sending the information to your brain. So we focused much of our research on the retina. It's easily accessible, easy to test. So one of the things that I did as a, as a graduate student was show that in the time when we did this work, we were using as a model system goldfish. You know, most many biologists, biologists who do laboratory work use model systems. They pick a certain species of animal or plant or microbe, and a bunch of labs work on the same species. This is helpful because then you can share information and create a, a more comprehensive body of knowledge if you all focus on. One. And so at the time, goldfish was the, the classic model system. So I showed where in, I showed the process of how new neurons were made in the retina of the goldfish. And I just kept working on that sort of area. Later, we moved into regeneration. So since fish can continue to add neurons all their life, what happens if you damage the brain, or what happens if you damage the retina. Now in us, if we lose neurons through damage or disease, we can't make new ones. But in a fish, not the case. A fish, if you kill a neuron in the fish's retina, it just makes a new one. It replaces it. And so later in my research career, we determined where those new neurons were coming from during regeneration when you would damage the retina. So you all know that, um, you know, you can't look at the sun, you know, without a protection over your eyes. If you look at the sun with your, just with your eyes without, you know, a smoked glass or something to um, prevent the strong rays from hitting your retina, if you, if you let those rays hit your retina, you will destroy the photoreceptor cells, which are neurons in your retina that actually capture those photons. So we did basically the same thing with fish. We would shine a very bright light, not the sun, but a very, very bright light into the fish's eye. It would destroy the photoreceptors, just like it would do in our eye. Two weeks later, they made new ones. And we found that those new photoreceptors in the eye were coming from another type of cell called the glial cell. It's not a neuron, but it's, a, it's another cell that's found in nervous tissue in the brain and in the retina. And glial cells are helpers. Their general role is to help neurons. And what we showed is that actually these glial cells not only do they help the neurons in the normal eye, but if, they, if the retina is damaged, these glial cells, and the ones in the retina are called Mueller glial cells, they change what they're doing and they make new photoreceptors. And what's interesting is that in our eyes, the retina is structured exactly the same as in a fish, almost exactly. I mean, there's some differences, but 
the fundamental structure of the retina is the same. We have Mueller glial cells in our eyes, but when our retinas are damaged, the Mueller glial cells don't make new neurons. But we know they're capable of making new neurons because scientists can remove tissue, so post-mortem tissue from a person who's died and donated their eye to science. You can take the retina out, take the cells out, put them in a tissue culture dish and the Mueller glial cells in the human retina can be pushed to making neurons in the tissue culture dish. So what that tells us is that our glial cells in our eye have a latent capacity to regenerate. In other words, if we could figure out how to tweak them to get them to remember that in fact, they do have the capacity to make a new neuron, but something about the human retina is preventing them from doing so. You move them out of that environment and they're able to make a new neuron. So a lot of that later work that we did, we switched model systems to the zebrafish. Um, some of you, everybody knows a goldfish. Many of you may know zebrafish. They, they're named that because they have stripes. It's a common fish that you see in a pet store. And the reason that the whole field sort of switched from goldfish to zebrafish uh, in about the 80s or so is that we could do genetics on zebrafish. It turned out to be a lot easier to do genetics on, on zebrafish than, than goldfish. That is all so interesting. And you explain it very well and easy for someone who does not have a background in biology to understand. So thank you for um, really diving into that and explaining that research. Since you retired from active faculty duty, I'm just wondering where you've been focusing your efforts. So I retired um, three years ago and um, closed my lab. And I continued until the pandemic hit, I actually continued to do a little bit of in-person teaching. Um, I taught um, what's called a first year seminar. So the first year students, the freshmen in LSA are um, encouraged to take a small class seminar with faculty. Um, many of the first year classes are big lecture halls, but the first year seminars are meant to, uh, to provide students, uh, freshmen with a, a chance to, these are limited enrollment to 18. And so it gives them a chance to have um, a more, you know, closer relationship with the teacher. So I continued to teach a course that I had developed called Biology of Stem Cells, um, where we talked about stem cell biology, just not only the research area, but also the, the sort of medical and political and social implications of stem cells. But then the pandemic hit, so I stopped doing that. Um, and so I've been focusing on continuing on, um, mainly on mentoring junior faculty, primarily women, um, and also reading about vex, COVID and <laughs> immunology and, getting involved in politics in a way that I hadn't before. So <laughs> those are the things that I've been doing over the last year. So switching gears a bit, I want to discuss an episode of a different podcast that you were featured on, How to Science, a podcast conducted through LSA. 
You joined the podcast to discuss an inappropriate heirloom that you inherited when you became chair of your department. Can you discuss this briefly and how it led you to work with your colleagues to defeat this unexpected type of bias? So I um, became chair of my department in 2008 and chair of MCDB. We have a what's called a rotating chair. So about every five years, there's a new chair in the department. So the, the outgoing chair presented me with a plaque when I became chair. And this plaque had been given from one chair to the next since 1949 in the Department of Zoology, the chair of the Department of Zoology, 1949, started this tradition. It's a plaque and mounted on the plaque is the penis bone of a walrus. The scientific Latin name for a penis bone is a baculum. Some orders of mammals have them, not all, not humans, but many mammals do have a penis bone. It's about, the walrus penis bone is about a foot or so long. And printed on the bone are the names of each chair of the Department of Zoology, beginning, as I said, in 1949, and the year at which the chair transferred to the next chair. So on this bone is my name, Pamela Raymond, 2008. Needless to say, when I got this from the outgoing chair, I was stunned. So, so stunned that I didn't know what to say. I, I wasn't I wasn't even angry in the, in the moment because I was just so shocked. You see, nobody in the department knew about this bone except the chairs. It had been a secret. It was a trophy, a secret. Kind of like a, a rites of passage or something from one chair to the next. I think they thought it was a joke but obviously there was some sensitivity because the fact is that they didn't share this information with the department as a whole. I don't know whether in 1949, whether this plaque was mounted proudly on the wall of the chair of zoology or not, but I was stunned. You know, when I thought about it though, I have to say it, it didn't surprise me in, in retrospect because Another reason that I had moved back to my home department, moved back from the medical school back to MCDB was because the department had a problem with gender. Um, when I was a graduate student, there were approximately 70 faculty between the two departments, botany and zoology in 1975. Out of the 70 faculty, there were five women. So when I was a graduate student, there were no role models for women in, in biology in, in my department here. And that was true around the country as well. So when I became chair, I went into the archives of the University of Michigan and did an analysis of the demographics in biology at the University of Michigan. The only way, I, there was no record of this, but what I did was go back and look at, we used to publish uh, printed copies of directories. You know, now everything's online. You go to the directory online and find names, 
Well, in the old days, each year out would come a new directory and it would list all of the faculty in every department and all the staff and phone numbers, et cetera. So I went back through the archives and tallied how many women had been in each, uh, in, in the two departments, botany and zoology, and then later biology merged into one department um, for, you know, from set 1975 on. And so I found that in that, in the period from 1975 till 2000, which is when the two departments, MCDB and EEB, Ecology Evolutionary Biology were created by splitting that. But in that 25 years, there had never been more than two women full professors in, in, in one time. And, and as I said, in 1975, there were a total of five women on the faculty. By 2000, it was about 7% of the faculty were women. By 25 years later, it was twice as many, 15%. But, but those were mostly assistant and associate professors because there was never more than one or two women full professors. So by the time I joined the department, there was one woman full professor. She left right after I joined. So at the time I became chair, I was the only woman full professor in the department. So we had been graduating women PhDs, you know, close to by that for the last 20 years or so, half or more of our PhDs graduates in the country have been women. It certainly was true in, in the department as well. So why were there not women on the faculty? Well, you can see that there were issues in the department, uh, gender discrimination. And this bone, this baculum was a tangible physical manifestation of misogyny th that underlay the whole culture of the department. And so one of the main things I did, my goals as, as chair of the department was to fix that. So we started hiring women. And, and to do that, I was inspired, I have to sort of go back a bit. Um, in 1998, from 1998 to 2005, I was in the provost office as the associate provost for faculty and academic affairs. And at the time, Nancy Cantor was the provost. Um, at that time, there was a, an awareness of trying to increase the number of women in STEM fields. And there had been for, for many years attempts being made to try to increase women in STEM fields. And the National Science Foundation had been leading in this effort. And what they had been doing is singling out individual women and giving them awards, they were called power awards, an acronym that I don't remember what it stood for, but it basically was individual awards to give them resources to advance their careers. But it hadn't been working very well. I mean, you know, a indiv few individual women working, but the overall demographics of science um, had not shifted. People used to think that all we had to do was basically fill up the pipeline, you know, graduate more women and they would appear on the faculty. But that pipeline was not filling up the faculty, it was leaking. So the National Science Foundation started a program they called Advance. And it was, the goal was not fix the woman, make her better able to do science, not that wasn't the problem. The goal was fix the institution get rid of structural impediments to 
gender equality in the same way that we want to get rid of structural impediments, structural racism, there was structural gender harassment in science. And Nancy Cantor was um, very interested in the University of Michigan taking, um, getting, getting involved in this. And so she and Abby Stewart, who was at the time um, head of the Institute for Research on Women and Gender, um, uh, got together and, and uh, got me involved. And we wrote a grant and we um, got one of the first in the first round of these awards, the first round was in 2001. And the advanced program is still going um, now and it is responsible, its goal was to increase the number of women on the faculty. So we did a lot of efforts to education, um, teaching our colleagues about unconscious bias and um, lots of other kinds of activities around mentorship and just raising awareness. Um, and so I took those lessons that I had learned in the provost's office with me as I became chair of MCDB and really implemented them in a more um, targeted way specific to our department. And so now, I mean, it's been successful. Now in, in 2020, MCDB has um, a, almost, well, 36% of the faculty is female. It's not 50-50, but it's 36%. But 20% of the full professors are female. And that's, and a majority of the associate professors and assistant professors are female, reflecting basically more equitably the, um, the demographics in terms of gender in ter of our student body. So great that you, you took a situation and did so much in the end out of it by implementing a you know an initiative that would eventually have this impact as you know this episode is a part of a special mini series we're conducting about women in stem as we celebrate international day of women and girls in science seeking to empower women and girls to participate in stem programs i'm wondering throughout your career what is an important takeaway you have with this in mind for our audience I'm, I'm optimistic. I think the times are, are, are changing. I was, I was perhaps sounding a bit gloomy and, and I certainly was when uh, at the slow progress we, we were making at the end of the 20th century for sure. And I have to tell you that when I was a graduate student, when I was a, a junior faculty member, I did not get involved in women in science issues. I didn't, I, I didn't um, because I knew very well that if I did, I would be ostracized by my peers and looked down upon. Um, in those days, the way you got ahead in your career was ignore, ignore it, you know, be one of the guys. Don't, don't complain. Don't get involved in those feminist issues. That's, you know, that's, really, you know, beneath you. I didn't know anything about social science until I, until I was in the provost's office and I worked on the advanced program with my, with my colleagues who are absolutely spectacular social scientists. And so it's only then when I had position of, you know, being full professor and chair of a department, uh, a position of authority that I could in fact engage in, in trying to make things better. 
I, nowadays, I think that I see that that's changed. My junior colleagues are both men and women are way more involved and committed to these kinds of issues. Don't feel any hesitancy about talking about it. Some of the senior colleagues may still be griping, but pretty much most of them that are objecting to this are retiring. And pretty soon they'll all be gone. Um, so in the 50 years that I've been in academia, there really has been a change. It, and it has accelerated in the last 10 years. And I think that's, I think that's really encouraging. I think that the next generation is, um, is, is gonna have much more equality in, in gender. Now we have to work on racial equality as well. I think that's our next challenge in science. Um, that's clearly the next challenge. Can you share any advice with women who are starting out their paths into STEM programs? So I think that um, it's important to seek out others who um, share the same kinds of commitments that you do. I think everyone needs to have kind of a network. Everyone needs to feel that they belong. And it's, and when I think it's important to be able to feel like you belong and not have to change yourself to fit someone else's mold. And I think that's possible nowadays. I, I see a great deal more the kinds of science people do and how accepting they are of others who have different ideas and different look different and speak differently. And I think that there is more awareness of, of the need for diversity. That being said, I think it's also important to have the ability to find others who, sh who do share in a closer way um, the same kinds of aspirations that you have. So not all women need a woman faculty as a mentor, but it's awfully good if you have at least some of your um, interactions are with people who are more like yourself because, because you need to feel like you're part of a team. And sometimes it's important to have another member of the team who really does feel like you. And so I, I think that, that networking is, is, an, is an important thing. And, and I do think that one of the good things perhaps about social media is that it's becoming easier and easier for people to reach out and find people uh, who share their, share their views. Um, you, you don't have to be limited to your own little corner of a building in your own lab. Um, you, you do have the ability to reach out and, and make connections more widely. And I, and I think that's important. Thank you so much. I'm so happy that you were able to join us today. And I look forward to the next time we speak. Me too. Thank you, Erica. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.